Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Describing Bruce Springsteen as a great American singer-songwriter is a massive understatement. He's the boss. And at this point, five decades into his remarkable career, Bruce Springsteen is also a national treasure. His voice is unmistakable. Classic anthems like Born to Run, Hungry Heart, and Jungle Land defined the American working-class psyche in the 70s and 80s. Today, Bruce has reached rarefied air. He sold more than 150 million albums worldwide, and he's won 20 Grammys. And at 71 years old, there's still no stopping him. He recorded his latest album, Letter to You, with the E Street Band in just four days. The album dives deep into the theme of loss, and also includes three songs that Bruce wrote 50 years ago. In this interview with Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin, Bruce Springsteen talks about how his Irish and Italian sides have physically manifested into songs over the years. He also describes the moment when Barack Obama gave him the idea for his intimate Broadway show, and how listening to Born to Run 45 years after it was released made Bruce realize just how good he really is. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Malcolm Gladwell, Rick Rubin, and Bruce Springsteen. Congratulations on the new album. Thank you, my friend. It's really good. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Is it the first time that you recorded live with the band in this way? We have had instances where it would it was not uncommon for us to get the band and track in the studio and then overdub 
instruments, replace instruments and over re-sing vocals. And that was a pretty common way for us to record in the 70s. And we would occasionally hit something where uh, it was completely live. The record Darkness on the Edge of Town is completely live. Born in the USA, that one cut is completely live. But it would it was a bit of an exception. And so we've never had a situation where we've brought the entire band in restricted ourselves to simply the instruments that are in the band and then cut everything live, including the lead vocal at one time. And we did three hours a song, two songs a day. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) And and both Darkness and Born to Run took a year more to record? Yeah, they Born to Run was about a good six or no, probably a year. Born in the USA was a year. Darkness on the Edge of Town was a year. They were all long records because I was searching for the record. It wasn't the recording that took a long time. It was the fact that I was searching for my album in a, in the midst of, say, 20, 30, 40 songs and, and trying to find out what I had to say. So... Uh, that in this case, I had basically, I think I might have one outtake from this record or something, but it's all ba- these were the songs that I had. They all congealed because I wrote them within about 10 days. Wow. Is that unusual for that to happen? A, a big group of songs in a short period of time? Uh, I had a record in Nebraska where I did that about three weeks. I had a record, Tunnel of Love, where I wrote most of the songs in about three weeks, but it's also not uncommon to spend a year and a half trying to find an album. So when the, when the, when the stars are aligned, those songs come in a, a conceptual package and, you know, the gods are with you and, and it doesn't take long. Do the lyrics typically come first or do the chords come first is there any rule in the way that songs come to you no no when i was younger i would write the lyrics as poetry on my first album almost all of the lyrics came first because i had in my mind that i was uh, that kind of a writer and so and and the, the lyrics were much more uh, dense and uh, a lot more imagery and uh, that was the only record where really I would say I wrote lyrics first everything else sometimes I'd start with music sometimes I'd have you know more often you have a line or if you pick the guitar up and and you know you're lucky if you if you get a title if you get a good title you're on your way uh, or but sometimes you just pick the guitar up and it comes out of your mouth, you know. That that moment is a moment that I have never heard anyone able to explain. I don't believe it's explainable, you know, and that's why it's creative. That's why it's magic. You know, you take at that moment something that is totally not physical, that is simply emotional, uh, spiritual, somewhat intellectual, and in the air becomes physical. It manifests itself as a physical piece of music. But what happens at that moment, I've never heard anybody describe. Yeah, it's a miracle. It's unbelievable yeah, when, you, when you get no, to witness it, it happening. And do, do yeah. you experience it? I mean, we when we hear your words, often we're moved to tears. 
when you when they come to you, do they hit you in that emotional way, or do you hear them more as these are good lyrics, this makes sense, I like the story? Do, do you feel it the way the listener feels it, or is it even possible for you to know? No, I have one leg being the creator, and I have another one that's the audience, and they're there simultaneously. And if I come up with something that's moving, I think I feel the same response even while I'm creating it, that the audience is going to feel, you know? So you're both, you're both creator and audience simultaneously. And partially by being the audience, it's assisting you in judging the quality of what you've done. Yeah, it's a great feeling, that, that feeling of, I guess um, that's the reason we do it. <laughs> it's the best feeling in the world. There's nothing like that moment when you go, there it is. God damn, I knew I had one more in me. <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments. And leading up to this album, how much was planned before the songs came? In, in other words, did the songs lead the charge or were you thinking, ah, I really want to make an album, it's been a while. What do you feel like? Well, I may feel like that. I may go, my work with the E Street band is cyclical. So... I'll work on some solo projects, but I will cycle my way back around to feeling like, okay, I want to work with my band. I want to make an album of, for lack of a better word, rock music uh, and timing, you know, so you start to get hungry. It's like getting hungry for a steak, you know, it's like, okay, I think I'm hungry for a steak tonight, you know, and it's a similar thing. You get hungry to work with the guys, you get hungry to make a certain kind of music, to reach a certain type of audience. And uh, it's more of an, uh, an inner drive that, that that's the first thing that you experience. And then if you're lucky, you know, you'll catch a metaphor, you'll catch a title, you'll catch a line, and songs start to lead the way. Is there a difference between uh, the way you write for the E Street Band and the way you do solo things? If you take, say, my last two records, uh, my I made a record called Western Stars, and if you if you looked at the characters on that record, there's a very isolated sort of American persona that I wrote from, and if you if you judge it with this record, I'm in the middle of a community on this record. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I work with the band, very often I'll be writing from the inside of a community outward. When I work on my own, I'm I'm studying that sort of isolated American part of the American character. So it will thematically, I'll move in different places. Can you describe sort of a little more about the emotional feeling of those two modes? I mean, does writing a song in E Street mode, when you say when you're writing inside a community, is that satisfying in a different way? Does it feel differently in the moment? It's funny because I'm sitting there by myself, but I'm imagining this entire sort of community around me. And uh, I'm imagining a different world than the world that I imagine when I'm writing for a solo project. It's just a different place you put your head, you know, you just travel to a different sort of emotional geography, you know, and, and you place yourself in that world and you're relating to everything differently. You're relating to the people in the songs differently. And I know that eventually I'm going to actually physically be in the center of that world, which is when I'm at the center of my band and we're about to perform or about to record this music. And so 
uh, it's a bit of a preparation for actually initially being in that world within the band and then going out and playing that music and being within that world within your audience. Whereas when I'm performing or writing for a solo project, I may or may not tour. I'm really character driven and uh, writing from a more, another part of my personality. I guess the way I would describe it is I'm writing from the Irish side of my personality, which is moodier and yeah. darker and gloomier. And when I'm writing for the band, I'm writing from the Italian side of my personality, which is hail brother. Well, you know, well met, you know, yeah. so, uh, very I, useful can, to have those two sides. It yeah. is. I was very <laughs> lucky. You know, my, my father was very Irish in personality and my mother was totally Italian and I sort of absorbed both of their approaches towards life. And when I became creative, I, I, I really drew on both of their, uh, uh, sort of all of our ethnic background there. You've talked about your dad's depression, yeah, and that you've uh, you have some of those seeds in you. Oh yeah. And what are the things that have helped you to move through those? And when was your first experience of recognizing, oh, I have this too? I hit a wall when I was thirty-two years old. I wrote Nebraska, and after Nebraska, I traveled across the country with a friend of mine. And it was on that trip that I realized something was amiss. Uh, I was always able to count on the miles, the music, to assuage whatever my demons were. But on that trip, it was the first time for some reason where it felt like it's just not doing the job. And when I got to L.A., I was completely an anxious mess and... I had no idea what to do with myself next. And all I knew was I need help. I've hit the wall. I don't know where to go with this. My usual remedies that worked in my 20s, music, this, that, touring, traveling are not working for me anymore. I've got to find another answer. And I began analysis when I was 32. I did it for 30 years. Changed your life? Yes, absolutely. It gave me the rest of my life, you know, the fulfillment of family, of, of love and being able to be loved, of uh, delving deeper into your own history and your own essence and uh, that affecting your creativity. It gave me another, uh, it, it the, the way that I would describe it is you sort of, you're standing in front of a brick wall and you think you're seeing all that the world is. And then suddenly you start pushing and suddenly a brick drops out and you look through into this complete other experience and existence and you go, fuck, <laughs> you know, whoa, I've been li living on such a limited level. And it just expands your, you know, expanded my vision. It also helped, uh, it helped rid me of my depression, that and also pharmacology has played a big part in giving me my life back. And uh, that's been very important also. It affect your writing, I imagine? 
Uh, no, I have never noticed that my depression ever affected my writing or that any medications I've ever taken affected my writing. When I was deeply, deeply, deeply depressed, I could always still work and write. For some reason, it never affected that part of my uh, uh, creative life or personality. I'm, I'm almost asking the other way around. Like, do you look at the songs you wrote pre-therapy as written by... Uh a smaller aspect of who you are and that through therapy you've expanded your vision. I don't know if that's um, leading. That's a leading yeah, question. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and I can tell you that, no, I don't uh, because I look back and I, the 45th anniversary of born to run was about a week or two ago. And so I was with a buddy of mine. And I said, Hey, I'm going to do an anniversary cruise and play born to run start to finish. And we said, okay. So Sunday morning we got in the car, put it on, and I realized that's one of the best records I ever made. Beautiful. You know, yeah, if I listen to Nebraska, I go, that's one of the best records I ever made. So uh, it, the dealing with my own personal depression, the material I wrote previous to, to that really was unscathed and untouched and, did, and it did not limit the scope of my writing in any way, in any real way. I wrote. I look back and say some of my best records were pre, pre-analysis and post-analysis. Has music inspired your writing more than anything else, or has literature played a role in lyrics and song structure for you? Everything I learned musically, I probably learned between 1965 and 1968, between when I was 15 and 18. I was a student an astute student of Top 40 Radio, where the masters of songwriting and record making were existed at that moment in time. I studied that like it was for my master's degree. And uh, I would say that maybe into the early 70s. But shortly thereafter, I stopped looking towards music for specific information. And I began in the late 70s to get more inspiration from reading uh, a lot of film, a lot of noir, uh, James M. Cain, Flannery O'Connor, Jim Thompson, and from watching films, John Ford and Howard Hawks and uh, a lot of film noir um, so I, I began to, to get a, a lot more inspiration from literature and film the older that I got. Let's talk a little bit about, more about this album. Many things fascinating about it, but one was that you include a number of songs um, from way back when. Yeah. First of all, what was behind that decision? Start with that. Why, 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 did, you, why did you want to put these, particularly if I was a priest, as most creative things, it's a non-decision. Uh, I don't operate from deciding first. I, I operate from an internal hunger, and dis my decisions come from there. So in this case, 
I happened to record a song that's on the record called Janie Needs a Shooter. And I recorded it. I said, I'm going to record this for record day in the United States. You put one song out. But I recorded it with the band, the way that we cut Darkness on the Edge of Town. And it sounded like Darkness on the Edge of Town. And I said, wow, that's, a, that's how the band really sounds when we play live. And I haven't caught that in the studio in a long time. And so I'm going to keep this for some future album. And so having one song that was 45 years old, I then was working on a box set of outtakes, the first of which was an entire album of songs I cut for John Hammond when he asked me to make a demo. He produced a demo for me when I first went to Columbia. These songs were amongst those songs. And I said, well, a couple of these might be fun for the band to play. So it just kind of fell into place. And when we played them, they were a lot of fun to play. And uh, the band came up with great arrangements for them. And, and that's how they ended up on the record. Why didn't these songs make it onto earlier records? Just by chance or? No, it's like, you know, you're, you're so fickle as an artist. You're so fickle, you know. They, you, know you have this music and then you write something new and, and boom, you forget about that. And you're on to the next thing. By the time I got, had a chance to record my first album, I'd already made an album. that, But I... I put that one aside because I had new music and I wanted to put what was what I had newest out. And so there was an album that was pre-greetings from Asbury Park that was all of this acoustic music with this type of lyric writing and more than an album, almost two albums and an album and a half that never got released. Mm -hmm. How does it feel to, for the first time, release song that you wrote 45 years ago? Yeah, the, the song, the two songs, "If I Were the Priest" and "Song for Orphans" are fifty years old. Fifty years, and old. Uh, it felt like I wrote them yesterday. Except, except I wouldn't write in that style now. You know, that very verbose, heavy amount of images. I just don't write that way anymore. I write more colloquially, uh, and so it was kind of fun to wrap my head around you know, singing all those words again, I realized, gee, this was really a great part of my writing, uh, my writing life. And I kind of left it too soon because of the new Dylan comparisons. I got sensitive about it and I put it away a little too soon because really I kind of had my own style of writing in that style. And, uh, Looking back, I said, I wouldn't have mind making another record or two in that style. But but I was very sensitive to, I was young, sensitive to about creating my own identity. And so I left that style of writing behind rather quickly. You hear it on the first three albums and you hear it less each album, you know. Mm-hmm. And by the time I get the darkness, I'm I'm done with it. There's still time to make those albums, you know. <laughs> I know. I got all the material sitting there. I may, I may do that. <laughs> <laughs> so you played If I Was a Priest for Hammond. You were auditioning for Hammond. Yes. One of the most legendary figures in rock and roll history. Could you yeah. take us back to that moment? You, were you scared? I was on the elevator going up to what might have been the 30th floor in Black Rock, which was with my manager. And he, John Hammond to give you an idea of what the record business was like, was seeing nobodies who he did not know at all off the streets of New York City who simply talked their way through his secretary. Mike Appel was very good at that, and he did it. 
so here we have, we've got a 30-minute audition with John Hammond. We go up. Uh, on the way up, I'm going, well, it's like this. I have nothing. When I come back, I'm not going to have any less than I have right now. So I'm trying to talk myself into not being nervous. It almost worked, but not quite. <laughs> what else did you play for him? Do you remember? I played, uh, if I were the priest, I played, the first song I played for him was It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City, which ended up on my first record. And I believe I played a song for him called Growing Up. I only played about three songs. And, he, and after I played my, I played one song and he said, you got to be on Columbia Records. Wow. Oh, wow. It was that it, it, it was that sudden. Yeah. He didn't wait to hear the second one. <laughs> I played the first. He said, "You got to be on Columbia Records." Wow. I said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> we always invite the people we interview on Broken Record to play little bits of songs if they want to. Um, sure. I would love. I'd love to hear a piece of whatever you want. But I, I was going to suggest if I was a priest, can we recreate the John Hammond audition here? Oh man, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I even know those words. I know because there's a... <laughs> yeah. Wait, John Hammond apparently said the minute he heard that song, he knew you were a Catholic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was really excited about it. He, that, he, that's what he loved. He loved the screwed up Catholicism in it. <laughs> Wait, was he Catholic? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. It's funny that he could spot it right away. Yeah. <laughs> But you're a you're a double cat like you're a special breed with Italian one side Irish on the other you're like a you're like the most powerful kind of Catholic hybrid. Yeah, we're steeped 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 in it. So <laughs> it's my lot in life. We'll be back with Bruce Springsteen after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer, yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. 
They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with Rick Rubin, Malcolm Gladwell, and Bruce Springsteen. How is your spiritual life now? What's your spiritual life like? Uh, I don't think about it very much. I guess if, if I look at it, I'd say it comes through in my music, you know, and, and then in just the general, your general behavior during the day uh, and, and what you see reflected in your children as to how well you've done and how well you've lived over the years, you know. Uh, I got some solid citizens that we've raised and, and makes Patty and I proud and they got good inner their inner core is is strong and 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 righteous and uh so we go well we must have done something right you know we must be we didn't we had no dogma or religion but we just had a way of living that i hope passed on a little bit of uh, righteousness for them and and so uh if i if if i observe it in any way it's purely through listening and looking back at my songs and seeing where they were influenced by my Catholic faith and, 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 or by a spirituality in general. I, I basically consider myself a spiritual songwriter in that primarily I want you to dance, I want to entertain you, I want you to listen to my music and wash your clothes and, and, and vacuum your floor, and I'm also trying to address your soul. So Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this album, I mean, is a powerful theme of, of loss in this album. Yeah, um, you talk. I mean, you've got, you have lost a lot of people close to you over the last few years. Well, you know, death is funny because when you're Italian and, and Irish, uh, you you get very used to death when you're very young because of the wakes. 
You know, you, I, I was to many wakes when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, where the body is just in the room for days at a time, and people are drinking and laughing and and visiting, and everyone's excited to be together. And and I went through a lot of that as a child. And then you uh, you leave home, you reach your twenties, and for a long time, unless there's something unusually tragic, death is not a big part of your life. Twenties, thirties, even forties. But once you get into your 50s, 60s, and 70s, it rears its head again. And people begin to die from natural causes and from illnesses. And, and it becomes, once again, a part, a part of your life. And so it's become a natural part of my writing life also. Mm-hmm. Is there a song? Do you have a favorite on this album? I like House of a Thousand Guitars is one of my favorites. How do you choose a favorite song? Like, what is it that, what are the criteria that, in your own mind, make something a song special? I knew when I was writing it, I, I, I knew that uh, there was just something to it that spoke to me, you know? Uh, and while I was writing, I said, oh, that's a great title. Yeah, I just said, House of a Thousand Guitars is a great title. If I can write a song and make that title work, I'm good, you know? So so I, I got very excited about it and finished the song, you know? It addresses the world that I've attempted to create with my fans and, and audience and amongst my band and, and, uh, and, and, and just the world at large, you know? And, and so it was, uh, it's just my, it's, it's just one of my favorite songs on the record. Mm-hmm. Has your relationship to, to this, to any of the songs changed over time. Like you, you said you did a listen to Born to Run recently for the forty fifth anniversary. Yeah. And when you listen back, I know you liked it. Did it? Did anything strike you as surprising, or did any of the meanings change? What was the experience like? The experience was like, damn, I was good when I was twenty four yeah. years old. <laughs> you know, there was like, and sort of being surprised. One thing I was surprised at is how well it was recorded. It really, when I played it back, it sounded quite modern. And then I was a little shocked at the the depth and detail of the music that I was writing at that age. Because I didn't really play that well. I mean, I had a little Aeolian spinet piano that was half out of tune. And I wrote all of those introductions to Jungle Land, to Back Streets, Meeting Cross the River. Born to Run was written largely on piano, which is why Roy Bitten plays such a stellar role on the record, because I wrote most of the songs on the piano. And uh, so I think I went back and it it was just fun to, to realize, wow, I was really... I was really, my, my, my musical tastes and abilities were quite sophisticated for when I was so young, because I probably wrote most of Born, Born to Run when I was just 24, and we recorded it and released it when I was 25. And, and you play those songs, you play many of those songs live over the years, but you probably don't have much opportunity or reason to go back and listen to the album. No, I probably, I didn't listen to the record. I think I listened to it on its 40th anniversary, but before that, probably not in 20 years. Was there any moment in listening to it where you were taken aback, where you heard something that you don't remember was there or something that took you by surprise? No, I think it was just when I listened to to it in its entirety, how complete and full it was and and how well-conceived it was 
given how young I was, you know. Uh, uh, if I hear one of the cuts, I go, yeah, it's pretty good. But if I hear the album in its entirety, I go, that's eh, a little better than that. Do you do you ever realize anything about yourself looking back on the songs? Yeah, your songs are generally out in front of your personal development. They're like a divining rod, you know. Uh, when what you write about is something you sort of your the self realization can come a year or six months or two years. Oh fuck! Look, I I knew this back two years ago, but I <laughs> it was in this song, and I didn't really realize it about myself, you know, for that period of time. So your inner life, your subconscious, tends to be out in front of your self awareness, which is pretty much the same with everybody. Uh, in my case, I record it. I actually record that subconscious, and then have a chance to go back and 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 literally look at it and realize that uh, it took me a while to get there personally. Would you say most songs start from the subconscious and then work their way up? Or or do some songs just start intellectually for you? Uh, anything that starts intellectually usually sucks. Uh, <laughs> you know, I almost, I almost always depend on, uh, some, on some inner life sending a message to my brain to get active and to employ the mechanics that I've learned over uh, and the craft I've learned over the years. But it always comes out of the heart and soul first. So uh, that's, that's, that's generally the process of my writing. Have you ever kept a dream journal? Um, I never kept a journal, but I'm an active and uh, dreamer. And I, I dream and remember what I dream easily four nights a week or so, you know always been a very active dreamer and the only time i kept a bit of a journal was when i was doing some dream work with my therapist would you say that a song comes up like a dream comes up is there a relationship no i, I all the years that i've followed my dreams i've written one song out of a dream that was worth anything and it's just a little sleeper on a record called working on a dream as a matter of fact uh, called surprise surprise it's a nice little song and i actually I came up with it. Usually when you're dreaming, if you write something, you think it's phenomenal and then you wake up and you actually play it and it's not very good at all. You know, the dream and the dream enhances your experience of it. Uh, this was, it was literally just one song where it paid off in the end. How much of who you are came from what you've learned versus inborn? Uh, that's a, probably a 50-50, I'd say, you know, uh, uh, nurture nature. I, I would I would say that you come out with a certain personality and that personality in, uh, infects everything you do, your behavior and what you create for the rest of your life. Then you learn your craft and you process who you are through your craft and through the mechanics of what you've learned. But I think you, the essence of who you are comes is with you at birth. Uh, I think it can be distorted. You can irreparably harm that person, and, and you can do great destruction to it, and w in which case your life will take a different paths. But if it's even remotely nurtured, I believe that this, this such a, it's such a strong force that it's going to push through 
and and you're going to find some expression for it in some form as 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 life goes as your life goes by you know but i kind of go half and half with that because i i got into say a lot of noir writing and film noir and there you get nebraska and ghost to tom jode and uh, devils and dust where i write a lot of noir stories in in my in my narrative writing and the kind of narrative writing that i do so uh uh, that comes from just what I was attracted to, but but also then I'd have to say, but that really came out of the Irish part of my personality that 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 I was was given from my father. So you can trace it immediately back to your your birth. Also, what was the music playing around your house when you were growing up? No music. Really? No music. No no music. No books. No films. Wow. Uh, it was strictly television and top forty radio. When did you first start playing piano? I was really young. My 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 aunt had a piano in her foyer, and we would visit my Italian grandmother who lived to be 100 years old every Sunday. And so when my mother was upstairs with her mother, because they only spoke Italian, uh, I was downstairs in the foyer tinkling around on my aunt's piano. And she, I started to make some noise out of it. And so she said, here, I'm going to give you a key to the house. And when you leave school, if you want, you can come to, into the house and play the piano. And so I started to come home from school and I go to my aunt's house. Nobody was there. And I would just start practicing the piano. I was in my teens and I became a relatively proficient accompanist, you know, nothing special, but I can accompany myself relatively well. You said you wrote the songs for Born to Run on the piano. Is yeah. that is that typical for you or is that unusual to write a whole album on piano? Mm, I haven't done it in a long time. This record, Letter to You, was primarily on guitar. Back in that time, I wrote Racing in the Street, a song called Racing in the Street was on piano. Uh, I probably... That was that was a bit of a unique record in that I wrote a lot of. But if you go back and hear all the musical introductions and things, you'll see how it was piano based. How many songs have you written that you haven't released? Oh, <laughs> at least a hundred. Wow! You know, and we already put out a, a big a six a seventy box set of of stuff from the vault. You know, ten years ago, but I still have tons of stuff left. Are you writing all the time? Uh, no. I write very rarely, uh, and uh, I didn't write a rock song in seven years before I wrote this batch in 10 days. So I write when the writing is there and when I'm sort of inspired, and I don't worry about not writing. You never had that kind of crisis moment, panic moment, when you think the well is dry. Of course, you have that all the time. <laughs> but you said you never worry about not writing. <laughs> you manage your anxiety well, is that it? Yeah, I've, I've, I have that all the time, and I'm used to that feeling, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, so in a sense, I, if when I feel like that, and you always feel like that after you've written a good song, you go, "Oh, I hope that's not the last one," you know. But I've kind of gotten used to that being part of the natural state of a writer's consciousness, mm -hmm. you know. In in that, uh, it's such a magic trick, and you and you and you are. It's so out of your control, even after all the craft that you've learned, that uh, you know you just don't know how you do it. And so, uh, you know, I can sit here and say, "Gee, I'd like to write uh, another album," <laughs> you know, but. Uh, uh, I, I know it'll come along at some point. I don't know how or when. So 
I'm both, I guess the best way to explain it was I'm, I'm comfortable with the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Does it usually come with one song? Is that, is that how it starts? If you haven't written for a while, will a song come? It'll come with a song, and if it's a good song, and if it's if it's working around a theme you haven't worked before, like what I did on this record, I took as my subject music itself and rock and roll itself as an idea, and uh, the ideas of bands themselves as an idea, and I've never written about that subject before. So when I locked onto that first thing, I realized there was a a, a small but deep well of other songs that I that I had and things I had to say about that idea and about the passing of time and losing band members and losing old friends and what it's like at this age to be doing in my line of work. So, uh, uh, yeah, if you're lucky, you know, you'll, you'll lock, lock, lock onto something and, and, and more than, and, and you'll tap a little vein and, and, and more than one song will come out. Did the subject matter come before the first song, or did the song come and give you the subject matter? The circumstances came before the song. I had a very close friend who passed away who was the last, besides me, was the last member of my first band, so that left me as the only surviving member. And I thought about that a lot. I I, I didn't think about it in the sense, okay, now I'm going to write some music about this. But I thought about it a lot. And then a song came out, you know, uh, uh, little strange things happen. I had a kid give me a guitar outside of the Broadway theater and an Italian kid was standing there one night and he had a guitar in his hand and I thought he wanted me to sign it. So they said, no, 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 Bruce, Bruce, this is, this is for you. We had it made for you. And, uh, I took it and on the way home, I looked at it and it was made from beautiful wood. It played gorgeously and sounded wonderful. And I left it in my living room and that was the guitar that most of the songs came out of. So, uh, you know, it was another bit of lucky happenstance, you know? Would you say most of the albums had a triggering moment, like either, uh, some life experience that starts the first song that leads to the journey of the album. Yeah, I would say that perhaps, you know, but also it's sort of like there's car, you start your car and it runs. Oh, great. An album comes out. You start your car. It runs for a half an hour, breaks down, doesn't run for two weeks, start it again. Nothing again. Nothing. Records are made like that. You know, I've I, where I've written a song. I've written six songs that I think are really uh, record worthy, and then spent a year trying to write six more. Wow. You know, so so it, it's simply not predictable, and you have to get used to withstanding that anxiety and you have to get comfortable with it because born in the USA, I think I wrote eight or nine of those songs and then, and then spent a year waiting for dancing in the dark, Bobby Jean and no surrender. And wow, that was just the way it went. I didn't have an album till I had that music. Even if I had nine good songs sitting there. We'll be back with more from Bruce Springsteen after a quick break. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, 
wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin and Malcolm Gladwell's conversation with Bruce Springsteen. How many people were in the original E Street Band? The original E Street Band was a five-piece band. There was one keyboard. No, yeah, one keyboard, and then I played keyboards sometimes. There was a keyboard, a guitar player, a bass player, a drummer, and a saxophonist. It was a little club uh, rock and soul band. And when did it start expanding? The last time I saw you play, I think there were... It felt like there were more people on stage than I could count the last uh, time well, I we saw might, it. We might have carried horns horns and singers on that tour. Generally, the band, the stable the membership of the band is, is uh, myself, Steve Van Zandt on the guitar, Nils Lofgren on the guitar, Gary Talon on the bass, Max Weinberg on the drums, Charlie Giordano on the organ, Roy Bitten on the piano, and Jake Clemens on the saxophone. I think that's nine people. And that's the hardcore of the E Street Band now. Do you recall what was going on the first time you decided not to make an album with the E Street Band? Let me think. That would have been Nebraska, I guess. And I was planning to make Nebraska with the E Street Band. But what I ended up with came about as being such an accident. I ended up with a cassette that I had in my back pocket that I carried around for several months while trying to re-record that music with the E Street Band in the studio. And everything we recorded sounded too slick. It sounded too bright. You know, and it and I lost all the mystery that came out of the happy accidents that occurred in my little bedroom. So eventually, after trying for quite a while, I just pulled the tape out and said, "This is it. This is the record. It's either going to come out on cassette or on vinyl," and and that's and 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 that's the way it was. And and then after that, solo records came up just just to get some relief from working with the band initially. The next solo record I made was Tunnel of Love, which I made in my garage with me and another guy, and I played all the instruments. But it was just a relief to sort of get away from the pressure of having to record with the band and having to just use this, these particular musicians, this set of instrumentation. I needed to have more freedom than that, and so it just came around very naturally. Is Nebraska the only album that you ever made that you didn't know you were making the album while you were making it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've I've made other. I, there's a record called Devils and Dust that. Uh, but no, I knew I was recording for something then. But Nebraska was really where I was just trying to make a demo to see if the songs were any good, and I ended up making an album. Amazing. I remember as, as a fan of yours, the album that took me by surprise was Nebraska. Because it was the first time I had seen yeah. the uh, the the Irish side of you, <laughs> yeah. and the adoption of this quintessentially American. I mean, I thought of you as you know ethnic New Jersey immigrant kind of America, and then all of a sudden you were playing Heartland character. Yeah, um, and that took me by. I mean, I was blown away by the album, but it took me by surprise. I'm curious. Did it take lots of people by surprise? Did you? Was that a? In retrospect, was Nebraska a hugely important kind of transition album 
It was for me because I I studied a whole. Uh, I came upon a whole type of writing that really began on the River album with the River and with a song called Stolen Car. There was a narrative type of writing, a storytelling type of writing, that that maybe you would go back to Woody Guthrie or or Talking Blues or but but basically it was it was in, inspired by by books and cinema that I was interested in at that moment and also of creating a character that was wider than just the character that came out of New Jersey that was just a broader american uh, voice i i was i was interested in at that time so yeah, the record came out people didn't know what to make of it it got a little bit of airplay it got a lot of nice reviews and I didn't tour on it, and it disappeared rather shortly. I'm very surprised to hear you say it disappeared, because I feel like it's one of the records that has had the greatest long-term... Yeah, I'm just me sort of commercially, you know. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. But, it, but it has had... If I meet young pe- a lot of young people, that's their record for one reason or another. Maybe because it came up shortly after the punk revolution. And I've, I've seen it described as one of the first punk acoustic albums, you know? So <laughs> like uh, yeah. it's, it sort of is in a funny way in that it was completely done at home, do it yourself, cost a thousand bucks, little four track tape player mixed onto a beatbox through a Gibson guitar echoplex that was run, that was running slow. And <laughs> just this mysterious creation came out of it, you know? Do you think that the kinds of people who are were attracted to that record and to the subsequent Irish side, if you want to use that paradigm, okay. are different kind of fan for that music than you are for your for the other kinds of music? Yeah, yeah. When I play, I I have a lot of different types of audiences, you know, and I believe I, I have an audience that's probably interested in that side of what I do, and maybe a little less of the uh, electric side of what I do, uh, though I think I have. A, audience that pretty much follows me through through both iterations of 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 my creative life but but i i'm very conscious at night when we come out in the stadium or or in a arena of that fact that i'm playing i'm playing to casual listeners i'm playing to hardcore listeners uh and so i try to build a show that sort of addresses those things you know uh but I play to, I have to be aware that I'm playing to a lot of different audiences at once. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the first song you wrote for Nebraska was? I believe it was Nebraska itself. This is an aside, but I love, I love Nebraska so completely. And it was my moment when I came for the Italian and stayed for the, for the Irishman. Um, <laughs> and, but with Nebraska, the Frankie and Johnny song redeems the whole album. Oh, it's I always it was always the one that stuck in my head because it's the one where the guy does the he does the moral. He's the he does the morally right thing. Man, (laughs) like man gives up on his family. He ain't no good. Whatever the whatever that line is. The rest is about these people who have somehow kind of fallen away or and then and then in the middle of it, you have the sheriff who understands that his his connection to his brother is more important than his badge. And it's just. I just thought that was suddenly this like this ray of sunshine yeah. comes through in that, and it it just put that album on a different level for me. Well, the the whole record is about a, a fallen world, you know, that yeah. we all have to live in. That song, you're right. There's a little bit of redemption in it, and uh, it's one of my favorite songs on the record, Highway Patrolman. Highway Patrolman. Highway Patrolman. More than a little bit. Wait, Bruce. 
more than a little bit. A lot of it is, there's a whole lot of redemption. That's Jesus on the cross in that album. That's like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. On the subject of Catholicism, since we're sort of dancing around it, you said in a, a conversation with Martin Scorsese last year, you were talking about how much of your work is informed by having gone to Catholic school. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and then we have that John Hammond comment about, I knew you were a Catholic. Can you put your... <laughs> Can we? Can you put your finger on what is the what is the cat the Catholic part of of your music? Well, you know, I guess if I look back, it was great fear of a spiritual darkness mm -hmm. is impressed upon you when you're very very young. That's one thing. Perhaps the ability to work towards a spiritual light is also impressed upon you. So these those are very high stakes. Mm -hmm. And if you live your life with, with, with those stakes on the table, it'll be an interesting experience, <laughs> you know. And that may be at the center of what my Catholic upbringing does for my music and perhaps for me also, you know. That might explain some of it. I was going to uh, ask, Bruce, if you, if you wanted to play another s song off this latest album and give us a little bit of the of the backstory. Okay, let me let me see what I can find here. This was the song that uh, kicked off the writing for the entire record because it was most directly about my friend George who passed away and about those that particular time in my in my playing life. Everything everything came out of that song. Beautiful. All the rest of the songs came out of the world that I began to create in that song. You talked earlier about writing for the band, and you imagine the song in your head before you record it with the band. Is the mission to get it to sound like what you hear in your head, or are you sometimes surprised by what the band contributes in the process of making the record? Well, I, I try to get it to sound like I hear it in my head, but I don't limit it to what I'm hearing in my head. Usually you don't get it to sound like you hear it in your head. You know, it's sort of a guide, you know. But when it works, as it worked on this record, all I knew was like, yeah, these are rock songs. I want them to sound kind of glorious. And uh, <laughs> and so when the band came in and performed them, this was a case where I, I got more out of, out of, you know, we have I have a good producer. We have good recording technique right now, and the sound of the record is really quite lovely. And uh, so I got I got a little more out of it than than I might have been imagining when I came in, and that's always a sweet surprise. I think it's it's the best band I've record I've made with my band in a in a very long time. You know, so I'm 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 very very excited about it, and I can't wait to get out and one of these days and actually play it for my fans. <laughs> Once, knock on wood, COVID passes, it will be how many years since you you and the band have been touring? Uh, I believe we haven't toured now in two going on three. So uh, I think the last time we toured was 2017, perhaps. You know, counting our lucky stars, I'm looking towards 2022. I, I can't imagine there's really going to be anything going on this next year. And I'm hoping, if th I think if things work out, ideally 2022 is, would be the earliest that you could expect people are going to feel comfortable going shoulder to shoulder again anywhere. 
Yeah. And you've not, you've never gotten tired of touring. No, I love to travel. I like staying in hotels. I like being in, in strange and different towns. Uh, and uh, I still like it as much as I did when I was young, though I'm very happy now to actually have a real home to come back to. Yeah. Beautiful. You, you mentioned in the, um, I think it was in the Broadway piece, you talked about uh, blank pages and the feeling of um, having nothing when you were young, the sense of not having anything to do and feeling this freedom going forward, yeah. even though there was, there was nothing really to look forward to, but you just had a sense of freedom. Sure. Do you ever want to re-embrace with that and, and stop working and create a new blank page and imagine a life of just uh, whatever that would be, freedom? I would have to ruin my entire existence to do that, <laughs> which I'm sort of not exactly willing to do at this late date, you know. But uh, uh, but I I still have that sense of my life makes room for those blank pages within a certain set of limitations, and that satisfies me. You know, that this whole album and experience with the band was an entirely blank page that we got to fill from absolutely nothing. So uh, I, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. It's kind of a, this is kind of a personal question. I, I love the Broadway show. I really love the Broadway show. And I want to talk about how that came about, what g gave you the idea. But the personal part of it is you talk a lot about being um, a, a con man of sorts or a phony. In, in you start You start the show that way. And you talk about how the songs are not necessarily representative of your life, but more maybe of your dad or of things that you've seen, the situa your situation growing right. up. With the stories, the new stories that you told in the play, are they all really your experiences or are those also embellished? Well, I, I would say that I have a funny job in that when you write and sing something, and and you do it really well, it's so credible that people simply believe it's you. 90% of the time, it there is an emotional truth, a spiritual truth that that you have to draw up from inside of your essence for that for that piece of work to be credible. But how you set it, the incidences, the details, the story itself can be something, a complete work of imagination, you know? So you have to be able to draw on your own inner truth, but at the same time, you can dress it up in any monkey suit that you want, and I often do, you know? Uh, and so writing is largely an act of the imagination, but uh, which is where you get your 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 geography your your detail of character uh but for that character and geography to come to life into a real breathing world you have got to tap into your own true inner life so if you, when you're doing both of those things you're writing well beautiful beautiful so tell me about how the broadway show came about Broadway show came about by accident. I was invited to the White House by Barack Obama to perform in his last two weeks that he was uh, at the White House. And so I said, I don't want to bring the band. It's too big a hassle. I'll play some acoustic songs. And then I said, well, what am I going to do? Uh, I'll read from my book and I'll play some acoustic songs. And so I came into the studio here and I spent about two hours 
picking out segments of the book and then a song to go with it. Uh, then I realized I had to slightly rewrite the book so it sounded colloquial. Uh, prose writing and speaking are not the same thing. So I rewrote the pieces a little bit so it sounded just like I was speaking off the top of my head. I went and I performed it at the White House, about 90 minutes of the play, which I put together in about four hours here in this studio. And at the end of the play, Barack Obama got on, the president got on stage and he says, hey, I I know you did that just for us, but that should be a show, <laughs> you know. And so on the way back from Washington, I was with my manager, John Landau, and my wife, Patty, and we said, yeah, that should be a show. So, well, but, and we started talking about a venue, and I realized if it was going to be a show, I played to 200 people in the East Room. But if it was going to be a show, I needed a very small audience that was very controllable, or I could get an enormous amount of cooperation and silence, and it had to be a very intimate environment. And those jewel box theaters are on Broadway, so that's how I ended up there. Was it a fun experience? Best experience of my life. One of the greatest. Wow. Wow. Was it difficult doing the the same material day after day? I loved it, because I always... First of all, it was a world that I loved entering. It really got me in touch with my past, and uh, it was sort of summational. I sort of, this is a, a little bit of what I've learned up, up to now. And I enjoyed inhabiting those characters every night, and uh, uh, I found something in it every night. And right up to the very last night, I was having the time of my life. Were the audiences consistently reacting in the same spots or or might depending on the night did different things move people differently yeah the audiences would vary night to night you know uh some nights a little rowdier some nights you know a little more expressive other nights listening a little deeper uh it there was a, a level a general level of consistency that i found comforting and and good to play to but there's no, I've never played the two audiences that are alike, uh, not on any night of my, any night of my work life. I've never seen two audiences that are the same or where the alchemy is the same uh, two nights in a row. It just doesn't, it's impossible to happen. Did you feel more of a sense of direct communication with the audience than you would in a concert setup? Mm, no, not necessarily. Uh, the, the, the mechanics are very, very different. But you still have to connect your mind. You have to meet mind to mind and heart to heart and soul to soul, whether you're at a giant stadium or whether you're in a 900-seat theater on Broadway. The mechanics of connection are the same. Uh, you know, you've got to draw on your emotional life, your spiritual life, your intellectual self, your physical self when you play with the band. And, you know, you've just got to meet that audience face to face uh, as intensely as you can. So uh, even though the situations are very different, the fundamental act is very similar. I'm so happy that you made it. Thank I really you. am. It's like it's, Thank you. It, it feels good. Thank you. What's your uh, favorite and least favorite part of your job? I suppose the least favorite would be uh, the prying into your private life, uh, which I don't experience much anymore because I'm pretty much old and and people are in, and people are a lot less interested in you, you know. But when I was younger, I I, I that could 
really raised the level of my anxiety, and and I uh, uh, I, I resented that a little bit, but I, I learned to live with it because that's that this as they say in the Godfather, this is the life we've chosen, and uh, <laughs> so that would be my least favorite. My my most favorite is is simply getting on stage and playing. That's that's the uh, you know and having that moment with the audience and with my band and or with or with the you know, on on Broadway with the in a situation like that. That's that's the thing I love to do best. Beautiful. Well, how'd we do, guys? I think we did great. <laughs> Can't tell you how how much fun this has been and, and an honor. Great, man. I, 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 I'm a fan of both you guys and uh, I had a great time doing it. Thanks to the boss for taking us deep into his writing process and for playing some music. You can hear his new album, Letter to You, along with all of our favorite Springsteen songs on our playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.